So if Gil sits in the room and thinks, oh, these people need Trey, I, I often sit with my clients, and then I go, these people need some professional help. I'm the help. This is bad news. Um, it's good to be here. Uh, yeah, I wanted to pray because I'm, I'm especially nervous this morning, which is a little bit strange uh, for me. You know, when I was in high school, I did speech and debate, and I did theater, so I'm used to getting up in front of people and talking and just doing whatever, so I can't quite put my finger on why this morning feels different. Um, maybe it's because I've got two kids running around that are like taking all my time these days, or I've been sick the last several days, or I think part of it is that I'm actually going to dive into some biblical stuff in more detail than I usually do, so I know I'm sort of treading into um, some unknown water sometimes for myself, so bear with me as I do the thing that I do. And if I just stop speaking, say something brilliant so the talk will continue. <laughs> um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. <clears throat> uh, God, I am I'm, uh, humbled and so thankful to be here, uh, to just be in a room with other believers, uh, people who have their own walks with you, who are seeking to know you and understand you, um, letting your love pour into them and then pour forth to others in their lives, Lord. And I thank you that we have the chance to do this together. I would ask that your Holy Spirit would guide, uh, that you would speak through me, and oftentimes, probably in spite of the words that I use, that we'd be drawn close to you, Lord. Uh, So we surrender the time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So Gil asked me to do this talk, and he actually gave me a title. So I didn't even come up with this. This is Gil's. So hopefully, hopefully it works. And if it doesn't, Gil can take the responsibility. But but I actually want to I, I want to start by going through the the verses that he said we're going to reflect upon, but I'm going to expand it. So instead of just doing uh, five twenty one through thirty three, I'm going to go a little bit beyond that. So I'm going to start a little bit earlier in Ephesians, actually starting with verse eight and kind of skipping around a few places here. Um, so here's what Paul says. He says, "For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light." I want to look at this theme of what does it mean to live as children of light? And he goes on further. He says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. We can see it. It's been exposed by the light. Um, And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. And Christ will shine his light on you. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. There's a beckoning to come from the place where we are stagnant, lost, dead, so to speak, and let Christ shine his light on us. It goes on from there. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, etc., etc. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the, that's the bonus piece that I'm giving you. And then we dive back into the scriptures. And there's a couple of ways you can translate this, but I'm reading from this particular one where verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It goes on, Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the Lord, for the husband, the Lord, (laughs) slip of the tongue there. (laughs) For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. It goes on, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Wow, 
He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. And he goes on for there. And he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. There's something deeper going on here. I'm not just talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Wow, okay. Shine our light on that. He says, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And I'm going to give you the second bonus, because this comes in context. From there, Paul goes on and addresses two other areas, which we'll get into in a second. Parents and children, and then slaves and masters. So here's what it says. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Everybody can give a thumbs up to that. You know, being a father myself, that sounds good. Which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And then there's this little tag on. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Or in other, in other translations, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't discipline too harshly. Don't push them too far so they're exas- exasperated, frustrated. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So there's a, there's a call to the dads in this. Wow, there's something else. Shining a light on something new there. And then we get into the slave and master piece. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and respect, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor, when their eye is on you, when they're seeing you, um, but as slaves of Christ. Wow, there's a new light on this. I'm not just a slave to this person. I'm a slave to Christ. Here's a new light on this. Doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know the Lord will reward each one for whatever they do, whether they are slave or free. And then another tag, another add-on at the end. And then masters, treat your slaves in the same way. I just went through this piece of what the slave needs. Now, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So I'm going to try to unpack a bit of that. And again, treading into these deep waters, right? We've heard these words before. If you've been to many weddings, you've probably heard some rendition of this. If you've done premarital counseling, you've probably heard a pastor or a counselor read through some of this and then talk about roles and what this means. Um, You've had feminists who've said, oh my gosh, this shouldn't even be part of anything that we cling to these days. And you may have ultra-conservative people say this is exactly what has to happen and use it as a way to beat someone over the head into submission. We have all these extremes And yet here it is, the Word of God. So we're saying, what what do we do with this? So again, we're trying to shine a light on this to say, what what is God really saying to us in this passage? So we take a look back at the context. If we look at Ephesians, you start, Paul's talking about the sinfulness that we have and the need for salvation by grace. Then he goes and speaks of the oneness we have in Christ. This is a big part of the theme of this book. Relating out of love and out of an honor for Christ instead of just putting forth our own needs. How do we actually live in the Spirit? So it's in this context that we enter into the verses that we're looking at today. Let me tell you a few of the ones that come before this. In Ephesians 4.2, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So I'm thinking of myself, but I'm really thinking of you. What is it you need? What's the attitude I have towards you in relating? In 4.25, we are all members of one body. We are in this together. Be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. 432. 
live a life of love, or in other translations, walk in love, walk in the light of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, 5.2. And then, of course, this pivotal passage, 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, so one of the big themes is we're distinguishing, here's how the world does it. This is what it means to live as the Gentiles do, as Paul writes. And what does it mean to live a life led by the Spirit? Maybe this is what he's trying to show us. This is what the world does. This is what it would mean to be led by the Spirit. Specifically, he says, 4.17-19, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The way that they're seeing these things, their vision in their mind is futile. They don't get this. There's something that's not going to work about their perspective. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So there's a darkness. They're not living as children of light. And there's a hardness of the heart. So Paul is saying, I want you to put this off and put on something new. Be renewed by the Spirit. So we step into this. Basically, we've got three different things he's addressing. Husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters. Now we say, what's the context of this? Uh, and any ideas, what, what's, the, what's the role of a child? What's the role of a slave? What's the role of a wife uh, in this particular historical period? What, what would you say, just given what you know? How would they be viewed? Low and subservient, second class, yeah. Other thoughts? Almost like property, yeah. And, and then depending on who you read, some would say as property, literally, right? Low, second class, not quite up to the same standard. Maybe I own you. Certainly in the slaves, you go, yeah, I can do what I, what I want with you. Yeah, great, great thoughts. Any, any other ideas there? I think those are pretty accurate, right? So if we go with what's happening at the time, we have this piece. I'm your slave. I'm sort of your property. You know, children's rights back in the day were quite different. I mean, people weren't calling DHR because you made your kid go work in the field or you beat him in the morning because he wasn't listening. These things just happened, right? I was subservient. I was second class. I was lower than. And maybe Paul's saying, I want to shine my light on this. Maybe this is not as it should be. And particularly looking at women in this time, whether you're looking at the Jewish perspective, the Greek perspective, or the Roman perspective. With the Roman perspective, a little bit more freedom for the wives, but essentially, woman was in a situation where she couldn't get a divorce. The husband could get a divorce for any sort of reason. Ah, you didn't have your head covered in a certain situation. You messed this thing up. I've decided I like this woman over there, and so I can give you a certificate of divorce and now move forward. But the woman was often powerless. She could leave, according to the studies that I've read, and then leave her kids with her husband. That sounds like a great plan for a mom. So I'm, I'm sort of stuck, right? I'm in this position where I don't really have much power, and you can rule something over me, and I just have to put up with it. Right? So it's in this framework, as a child, as a slave, as a wife, that Paul is speaking, right? And we say, well, well what does he have to say? So we get these, um, we get these household codes that he begins to reveal. But I want to suggest to you, maybe he's saying, I want to shine the light of truth, shine the light of the Spirit onto this so I can show you something new. And I would also suggest there's a precedence for this. If we look at what Jesus did, here I'm going to reference Matthew 5. So, so bear with me as I go through all this stuff. No, this is not what I normally do. In Matthew 5, we have the Beatitudes. So everybody's familiar with these where 
all of a sudden, Jesus is turning things on their head. Blessed are the poor in spirit? What? If I'm down, I'm, I'm blessed? Blessed are those who mourn? I'm supposed to be sad? This is a good thing? What? What are you telling me? Blessed are the meek. Well, what does meekness do? I want to be strong. I want to be a conqueror. I want to have possessions. So he, he begins to turn everything on its head. You go, well, what is he saying? The whole way that I look at the world has been shifted and turned upside down. What do I do with this? Here's where it goes from here. After the Beatitudes, then, there's this piece about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I think here he's saying that this is our purpose. You are the light of the world. Uh, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. goes on. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So he's saying, I'm going to turn things on their head. Why? So you can actually be the light of the world. Let me shine my light on you, and then you can shine the light on others. And then what's interesting, here's the precedence that I think Paul is following. After this, right after this, there's a segment on uh, fulfilling the law. And he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. He says, this is not the case. I'm going to fulfill every single piece of them, right? And he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be more perfect at this than they are. Oh my gosh, right? that sounds incredibly hard. And then here's what he does. He gives these six different areas. Murder, adultery, divorce, making oaths, the idea of an eye for an eye, and the idea of how you deal with your enemies. And he starts each one with, you have heard that it was said. And then he turns it upside down. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So don't just don't kill anybody. You've got a call to actually think of them in love, not to stay lost in your anger. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, my goodness. We all raise our hands and we say, guilty. You're telling us this impossible thing. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's good. You've got your certificate. Go on your way. Be happy. But he says, no, I tell you something different, right? Or you've heard that it was said about an oath. Don't break your oath. But he says, don't even swear an oath at all. I want you to do something different. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And then finally, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard this. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And at the end of this, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here Jesus comes and says, I want to take all these things you've heard, these givens of your life. Everybody knows this, right? Love the people who are on your side and then hate your enemies and then protect yourself, right? Don't kill anybody, but it's okay to kind of have these bad feelings. He said, I want to turn this upside down. I'm calling you to something more, something beyond this. I'm shining a new light on this. And then he says, be perfect. What's this perfection that he's speaking of? Surely it isn't, I'm going to fulfill every single letter of the law in the way that it's meant to be fulfilled because we can't. So what is he speaking to? Maybe he's speaking to the heart. Maybe he's speaking to something that transcends the rules themselves and says that that there's a bigger picture here, right? There's more than meets to the eye. I want you to see things as they really are, the truth underneath the surface. And so with that, 
we return back to the Ephesians passage for a second, right? Um, look ahead. That one should do, right? Is it not going? Whoops, reopen. <clears throat> the seamless transitions of technology. Yeah. <laughs> I do have small children. It's one of my wife's favorite. My, my, well, my wife's too, but my, my, my older daughter's favorites. There it is right there. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Thank you, Gil. You know, so you, you've probably seen some of these signs that people hang up. These, these house rules, you know, be happy, enjoy life, smile, live. All these kind of things that would be, you know, common in our present day. Um, and then, if anything, you might have ones that are shortly, you know, punitive. You know, if you break it, pay for it. If you wear it, hang it up, etc. This is what you have to do. Right? The first one is sort of life-giving. Oh, let's let's be let's be free. You know, um, and if not, you know, this is the consequence. Um, and then even we've got other comical ones, right? House rules. Mom's the boss. Number two, see rule number one. Or it's often translated, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And our culture, but, but I want to leave this up just to show the difference. This is so contrary to the culture that they were living in. It didn't matter what the wife felt. This was inconsequential. If the husband ain't happy, it's not ain't nobody happy. If the husband ain't happy, he's going to do whatever he wants. Right? Maybe Jesus is saying, I, I want to cast this in a larger, a larger picture. Maybe we've missed something here. The givens of the day, that a wife, a child, a slave, is sort of like property. Maybe this is not what I'm saying in terms of Christian love. Right? I just want to point out a few key distinctions between these household codes of the day back then versus ours and also distinguish what is Paul saying about this? Because these things that he's saying about wives submitting to their husbands, children obeying their parents, slaves their masters, Paul didn't come up with that part. Everybody knew that. In a way, when that part is being read, you can almost hear the audience going, I know, I know, a slave is supposed to do what the master says. I got it. Kids are supposed to be, we know this. Wives are supposed to do with their husbands. We know this part. This is the given of the day. But he says, let me, let me take this given and I want to turn it on its head for a second. This is not what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not trying to say, here's this new idea. A wife needs to respect her husband. A wife needs to submit to her husband. That's not the new thing. Or children should obey their parents. Or so. That's not the new thing. So what is the new thing that he might be saying? What is he shining his light upon in this situation. And I'm going to suggest a few things here. And then what we're going to do is transition that into what does that mean for us now in our marriages? How does it help us in our present moment be able to see each other in sight and in mind, to really see what's going on? So the first, at the very beginning, this 521, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he puts this thing on the table of mutuality. The wife is supposed to submit to her husband. It is in the Bible. It is scripture. But he's also saying the husband has to submit to the wife. That's what he's saying. What? Right? I, I mean, in a way, how radical this is. This is like saying, you know, treat your dog well. You know, don't beat your dog. Don't do this. But you know what? Submit yourself to your dog as well. What? No, this is the dog. I can do what I want with the dog. You know, I may get tired of the dog and I ship him off to someone else who wants to adopt the dog, bring him to the kennel, do something else. Say, no, no, no. This is like saying your dog is on equal footing with you. What? Or take care of your vacuum cleaner. And if your vacuum cleaner, cleaner needs something, go and, 
and give it what it what it needs. What? Right? The whole thing is shifted. Right? There's this idea of reciprocity, mutuality. Right? Um, four other distinctions. Right? The, the, the whole point of this is it's rooted in this idea of Christian spiritual living. I'm not just here to say what a husband should do, what a wife should do. I'm here to tell you what does it mean to live in Christ? What does it mean to live in that light? So in light of that, in your marriages, you would do things differently. You would not do this in the same custom. You would not live as the Gentiles do. You would see the value in this person mutually. Right? So it's rooted in the idea of submitting to Christ in general. That's the heart of this. Submit to Christ. Live by the Spirit. And then these things are going to take care of themselves. But I want you to submit to Christ. I want you to live in the light of that. Second, which is what is amazing about this, in those codes, those codes are written to the men. Here's what you do. Here's how you keep your slaves uh, in, in order. Here's how you keep your kids in order. Here's how you keep your wives in order. This one actually addresses wives too. As if I give you a seat at the table, I am addressing you. You are part of this conversation. You matter. You're legitimized because I'm actually talking to you as well. Um, and a third, it actually tells the husbands to love their wives, not just to view them as property. Right? And then the idea of submission, the, the, the closest definition given is the idea of respect versus kind of blind submission. So that they're quite different than what the codes of the day would say. Right? So we could go through, and I think I'll save some of this maybe for my talk in a, in a couple of weeks. He goes through what he's saying particularly to wives and what he's saying particularly to, to men, husbands. I'll just give a little snippet of this. He is saying to wives, um, I do want you to respect your husband. I mean, imagine if you were the lesser in that experience, the subservient one, the property, as Jay was saying, you might have a lot of resentment built up. You might think this is a pretty bad deal. And so you're viewing this person with hostility and you have this outward ob obedience, but inside you are raging. You are suffering. And here's this call from Paul to say, I don't want you to do it that way. In the midst of the suffering that you may have been in, or how much you don't like this. I'm asking you to think of this in a different way. As a wife, how do I respect this person? How do I see what they're really trying to do here? Right? Um, one of the piece, um, oh, yeah, here's the United States of America. This idea of like uh, the headship, you know, some of the translations actually have said, you, you know what this really means? It's saying, like the head of the Mississippi River, which starts up here in Minnesota and then flows all the way down and goes down, you know, through New Orleans, my, my hometown. So the husband is the head, like the source. So there's a lot that's coming from him. A lot depends upon him to get all this stuff down where it needs to be. So maybe as the wife, you're going not just, this is some militaristic state where you rule me, but oh my gosh, you've got a lot. You're the source. I'm thinking of how much is on you. And out of that, I'm wanting to submit to you. Out of that, I'm wanting to respect you. There's a lot flowing from you that flows into me, that flows into the kids. Oh, I see what you're doing. Oh, gosh, this is bigger than maybe what I've thought so far. I'm shifting my perspective as a wife. Wow, you're, you're the source. You're the head, the trailhead, the head of the river. Oh, that's what's happening with you. Maybe my heart changes from that. And then, of course, to the men. Again, we won't get into all this. It's, it's a longer segment. And the main call is to love and this sacrificial agape love, even rooting it into the benefit. He who loves his wife loves himself. I'm called not to use you to make my life better, but actually to expand things, to give you a seat at the table, to realize that we're both in this together, mutually submitting to God. So let this mutual submission to each other be a reflection of that. 
So there's a new light shined on old things. The rules that were there in the day, they were givens. And Paul says, let me show you this, but put a new perspective on it, a new take. I want to show you how to walk in the light of Christ. Right? You had no idea you were supposed to do this, but I want to throw this out there. Now you're going to have to wrestle with this. So we transition it now to us. Right? Seeing each other fresh in our marriages. I'm just going to touch on this just for a little bit. So in so many ways, you probably say, I, I know my husband. I know my wife. And there's a comfort in this. I know that when I go off to work, is my wife going to pick our child up from daycare? Yes, I know that. I don't have to worry, like, is she going to forget? Is she going to be off smoking crack somewhere and not turn around and take care of stuff? I know that that's not going to happen. And my wife also knows I'm going to go into work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and, and, and I'm going to work. I'm not going to wake up and decide that I want to golf and then lose my job and put us in some horrible position. We know these things about each other. There's a comfort in that. I can rely upon you. We see each other. I know who you are. And there's also a way that maybe we, we don't see each other. Uh, maybe we get stuck. We think we know who this person is, but maybe we don't really know. Maybe we haven't shined a new light on this. And maybe much like Paul is suggesting in these household codes, and Jesus is suggesting in the Beatitudes, and the discussing fulfillment of the law and how to change these perspectives, maybe there's a new light we need to shine upon this to see it fresh, to see it differently. Right? So what gets in the way of seeing each other? Right? Why do we not see each other as we really need to? I'm going to throw out just a few basic ideas with this today, and we can kind of wrestle with them a bit and springboard from this next time. But one, any truth we know from psychology is we do not see things accurately. We just don't. Right? And here's one little slide that kind of shows that in a simple way. You've probably all seen these different optical illusions. So from the visual standpoint, are these lines straight or are they kind of going at, at just different angles? Right? Visually, what does it look like? Yeah, not straight. Clearly, anybody would say, I, I see that. It's obvious to me those lines are not going straight. But the truth of the matter is they are. But what they've done is the placement of the different blacks and white squares gives you the illusion that they're slanting in different ways. And then you can look at this for hours and your brain is going to tell you that they are not straight, even though they are. We don't perceive things accurately. We're influenced by so many different factors that change our perception. Here's one more that shows this point too. What is this? It's a car. Yeah, a bug. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Is it a complete drawing? I mean, it's, it's getting there, right? But you've, you've sort of got a, a bit of a wheel. There's no wheel in the back. You can't see any people inside. There's no steering wheel. There's not really a door handle. But you know it's a car. How do you know that it's a car? How do you know? Say it again. You're, you, you know what a car looks like. You're familiar with it. But you don't see all the elements. How can you be sure that it's a car? Any idea how that works? Yeah. So our, our brains are designed that we fill in the blanks. Right? We form a template of what things are. Because in any situation, I don't have the mental capacity, I don't have the time or the energy to be able to look at every single little detail and go, oh, I know what this is. Instead, if you fit a basic prototype, I go, I know what that is. That's a car. Right? Just like if, it was the, if you were out on a camping trip and you heard a big growl, and you saw a large animal coming at you that seemed really sort of hairy and quite tall, 
you probably wouldn't go, I think that's a grizzly bear, but I'd like to come up closer and look at every single inch down from the feet all the way to the head to know that it's a grizzly. You don't do that. Inside you go, I hear the growl, I smell the smell, and the fear takes over. You go, that is a grizzly bear. I know what that is. And I go on and I run. So it's an adaptive function. But the point is just this. We, we, are, we are designed, our brains are designed to take stuff and see it and think we know what it is, but we often don't know what it is, or to fill in the gaps, to complete the lines so that we think we're 100% sure I know what this is, but it's not the case. Right? Even if you look at the research on eyewitness testimonies, eyewitness testimonies are inherently flawed because people have biases that come in and shift what they actually see in the moment, which is why if you have five different observers of an event, they all give a different account of what they've seen. What is that about? Are they lying? They're not lying, but this is what I've seen. Okay, it's one big takeaway. What are we shining our light upon here? It's that we don't see things accurately, okay? We don't see things accurately. What ends up happening instead is we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. Right? So what I perceive in you is going to say a whole lot about what I believe, what I think, what I feel, but it's going to feel 100% real to you. And I'm going to stay stuck in that position. So we get lost in these beliefs that affect our lives, right? So you may think, I don't really have a partner in this. If things are going to get done, it's going to depend upon me. I know this from time and time and time again, from all my experiences. I can't rely upon you. Or you're always going to put the kids first. Right? I know this is the case. Right? Or you really aren't interested in me anymore. I know what's going on here. This is what I believe inside. So in every situation, I see this thing that I believe. Right? So first of all, we're just saying, just putting the basics on the table today. We do not see things accurately. If you left with nothing else and you went into your marriage going, I get it. I don't see the real truth in here. Maybe you'd be open to saying, okay, what's the real reality here? But if I believe that I see the real truth, which is point number two, we're stuck. Right? So here's the human dilemma. I don't see things as they really are, but I really believe in my heart that I see things as they really are. So now I can't move past it. I get stuck just looking at the end of my own nose, thinking I already know what's going on. Right? And we confirm the things that we already believe. Right? So, for example, a husband who may go to work, come home, uh, cooks dinner, uh, cleans up the dishes, uh, puts the daughter to bed, uh, takes his son out to go throw the ball with him, you know, goes on a business trip and doesn't spend any extra money but brings home presents for the kids, does all these different things, and then forgets to take out the trash. And the wife goes, oh, i got to do everything around here. Right? I can't rely upon you. It's all up to me. Because inside, she's got this perspective. That's the reality. So I see, I see what I believe. Right? Well, the husband who thinks, gosh, you know, once we had kids, I disappeared in your world. I'm not important anymore. Right? So he may forget that the wife got a babysitter and surprised him with this trip to Jamaica or for a date night or even just an afternoon to go do something together. Or that she said, I'll take on the burden of this so you can go golfing because I know you'd like to do that. I'm thinking of you. It gets missed. Right? Because one time he says, can we go do this? And the wife goes, well, I've got this other stuff with it. You go to all their plays. You go to all their performances. Can you not just once do something for me? I see what I want to see. It confirms the stuff that I believe inside. So what happens? We stay stuck. We become blind and deaf. We're not taking in new information. Right? 
So we get in these arguments, conversations maybe, but probably arguments <laughs> with our spouse, and they try to say, but no, you're not getting it. I want to say, I get it. I know. You've said this a million times. You don't need to say it again. I understand. You shut them down. Right? And actually, the truth of the matter is what happens is when your spouse starts, starts talking, in your brain, subconsciously, you say, I already know what they're going to say, and you stop listening, and you're already thinking of what your response is going to be to prove your point. I can't see you anymore. There's no new light shining upon this situation. So this is why couples have this experience of saying, we get into an argument, it's almost like I say, here's your script, you know, will you read from this? Here's my script, right? What are you doing at 8.15? Nothing. Want to have that argument? Sure. <laughs> read this, I'll read this, and then we'll walk away both feeling empty and miserable and disconnected because we keep doing the same things because we have no fresh light to shine upon this. I've already decided who you are. I know who you are. You're the man who cares more about your success than our family. You will do whatever it takes to have a high reputation in the community to make the most, to prove that you're, you're, the, you're the great man that you think you are. Oh, I know who you are. You're the woman who was more interested in tennis and more interested in her kids and more interested in everything else in the world than me. I know who you are. And so I see that in every conversation. And we're stuck. We have no new light to shine upon this. So we're lost in a battle of either trying to correct our partners and prove our point and get them to see things as we see it, perfecting them, perfecting them, you change. Or we slide into what so many of us slide into, which is resignation. I know who we are. We're the people that used to have a dream together. We used to believe we could get somewhere, but we're just surviving. I can deal with that. I'll take my dreams somewhere else. You can take yours somewhere else. We'll be parents together. But there's this gnawing emptiness inside, the gnawing disconnection. But in my head, I think we're not going to ever see it. I just want to throw one more point out and then have time for a few questions. Um, in a way, what we've done is, is a street light shining its light right there. Like we say, I already see. I already know everything there is to know. But I'm lost in only being able to see what's illuminated right here. There's no fresh light. But we think we know it all. Right? What if God is calling us to something different? He says, I want to shine my light on this to illuminate the whole scene. I just thought a few pieces with this. Right? What if step one of this is admitting we don't see things clearly. Right? All I have is my little spotlight shining right down. And I know this ground really, really well. But what's the context? What else is happening here? Maybe, maybe I don't get this. Right? He wants to expand a horizon. What if he's helping us realize this partner you're with has their own personal history that probably affects what's going on. And I've missed it in this moment because I've already decided I know what's happening. What if I've missed the idea of my own brokenness, my own need for a savior, my own need for a master that I'm submitting to? What if that's missed? I don't have a light to shine upon that. We miss the context, right? So you may see, oh gosh, look, this appears to be an Asian man shopping. That's what I see. I know what that is. That makes all the sense in the world, but maybe there's something more beyond. Maybe this isn't just an Asian man shopping. Right. Maybe this is more like Tiananmen Square and an Asian man showing the courage to stand up in the midst of stuff. But all I see in my little world is this little shopping bag and he seems to just be passively sitting there doing nothing. I've missed the context. Right? I've missed the context. 
think we'll hold off in the video. Let's conclude with this, and then I know we have like maybe two minutes for a question or two. So Jesus is saying, I want to take these things you think you know and shine a new light upon them to say, it's not what you think. I'm calling you to something deeper. I want you to see what's going on underneath the surface. And Paul, likewise, is taking these household codes. Here's how you do it in the day and says, it's not this. I want to shine my light on this and help you see something deeper that will set you free. And maybe in our marriage, the Holy Spirit is also saying, I want to show you what you think you know and go deeper with it. There's something else happening underneath the surface. And if we don't see that, we're stuck. But if we see that, we have the chance, actually, to grow deeper, to reflect Christ's love, and to walk as people of light. So let me stop there. I know I've taken up almost all the time. There's like a minute or so left to take a question or a comment. Yes. That sort of was a key for me in sort of thinking, you know, that really it's the absorption of oneself and just your thoughts on Yeah, yeah. Again, we're getting into big territory where I'm like, you know, do I know what I'm saying in this? But actually, I completely agree. I think there's a whole lot of that. Even even the notion if you distinguish pride, right? I mean, it's a self-centeredness. And really, there's probably insecurity within pride. Because if I was secure in Christ, I wouldn't be lost in that, right? So, yeah, we do have this self-loathing. I mean, I might say, number one, he's sort of giving a basic example, right? If in this I'm centered on me and I'm trying to protect myself and do what's good for me, that's my purpose, right? And I may help me hate myself because I'm doing it, but I'm still focused on me versus seeing there's a bigger context here, right? The streetlight, this is not just about Trey Hill and his life or Jay Ezel. It's about something beyond us. I've moved beyond just me and seeing a larger context. Yeah, yeah I like what Keller says. It's good. the questions now we're hitting the hitting the limit okay yeah sure uh, God thank you for this time thank you for um, the light of your word um, the guidance of your Holy Spirit that you you bring us where we need to go uh, you show us your truth you help us to see beneath the surface um, I just pray that, that that your will is done with this Lord I've thrown out ideas Whatever kernel is true, that it would be planted, and whatever is not would be just blown away. But thank you that you will do this for us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. 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 <clears throat>